Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast, and today's guest is Mauricio Flores. Mauricio's got a great story recommended to us from a friend of the podcast, Alexander Lindsay. And when I sat down with him in his brand or newly taken over studio in uh, the downtown, the heart of downtown Calgary uh, for his, his headshots business, YYC Headshots, I was like, Tell me more about this journey, and man, what an incredible journey it's been. Yeah, and Mauricio's second act is uh, is an interesting one because instead of you know a passion or a job, it's it's living in a whole new country. Uh, immigrating from El Salvador to Canada is definitely a daunting task, and it's definitely a second act, but it's not one that we've really heard about much on this podcast. So it was a really great pod to sit down, and listen into a new area of second acts. Yeah, and he, I mean, he came over. He was an engineer in El Salvador. He came to Canada as an engineer, and then he worked for, for a, an extended period of time in the oil and gas industry. But he, he just, and he doesn't like, it's not like one of those stories. It's like, oh, I, my, my heart wasn't in it. It's, he takes a very much an engineer's tact towards it. And he, he's, he's doing headshots, professional headshots for LinkedIn and, and websites, um, very much because he sees it as a tool to help people get to, to their goal. And that's what he wants to do is help people achieve. So incredible podcast. Uh, we tried a little bit of a different recording style this time. And and Mauricio, the guy you came to hear, his his audio is great. Mine can be a little touch and go. So please bear with us. Uh, but incredible conversation with a fella who's, who's doing some amazing things. So without any further ado, let's kick it over to Mauricio Flores. Oh, thank you for having me, Gord. Pleasure to be here. It's a really uh, new experience for me. I've never actually sat down face to face like this and, and conducted an interview, but uh, I'm really excited to do it because I feel like the 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 vibe of of sitting down to talk to somebody is so different than doing it over the computer. And your story is really kind of one of uh, you've you've taken a bunch of steps in your life, and I feel like it's it's going to be a lot of fun to sit down and talk to you face to face. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that is going to be fun too, and I agree with you. Like the whole virtual interaction, I think that it was a really good tool that we had over the last, the first three years of the 220s. But there's nothing that is going to ever replace face-to-face interactions, right? Well, and and I actually just had this conversation with somebody a couple of episodes back where, you know, four or five years ago, we, we wouldn't have probably even been able to understand how to use Zoom or Google Meets or Microsoft Teams. And now it's become very commonplace, almost to the point that to sit down face to face because of the effort that it goes to coordinate it. And uh, a lot of people just don't bother and we always revert back to to the virtual meeting. And um, so when you when you said you had all the recording equipment that we were required to sit down and do it, I was really excited to sit down with you. Um, so yeah, we, Alex reached out to me and said, I think I got a guy who, who's got a, an interesting story that might fit for the pod. And, uh, and he passed along your information and had a quick look on, online about, uh, about what you're doing now. But, uh, but what you're doing now and, and shooting headshots, uh, YYC headshots, 
YYC headshots in uh, in Calgary here um, is is really a far cry from uh, where you started and and even how you ended up in Canada. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think that YYC headshots it's the third act of my life if I am keeping count uh, properly. So years ago, I remember that I that I was lucky enough to have access to somebody that was a really good therapist. And one of the things that she asked was like, if you, if somebody were to ask, how would you describe yourself, right? They will say, I will say, like, I'm a male, I'm an immigrant, and I'm an engineer. So those are the three things that just personally define who I am. So, because I could have been a, in a relationship, I could have been a father, but no, the things that really define who I am is I'm a male, I'm an engineer, and I'm an immigrant. And I was born and raised in El Salvador back in, 1985, so I was a baby of the war. So El Salvador, during the 80s, had a civil war. Okay. Uh, that lasted between 1980 to 1992. So my whole childhood was marked by uh, the civil war, right? Like, but at that time, I was just too know, too, too young to really understood what it meant, right? It was just until we got to the post-war situation where things, well, I was old enough to understand things, right? And one of the things that I'm really conscious about uh, who I am as a person is like that tenacity that just kind of comes from growing up in an environment like that. But maybe not just me growing in an environment like that, but more like my parents being like young adults in an environment like that, right? because they were the ones that were really uh, shaped by those experiences. And I was just, again, this is the only thing that I knew. But uh, when I had a really lovely childhood, uh, when some hiccups, just through, through interacting with the social circumstances, right? But I was lucky because uh, even though as anybody, like there are shortcomings that your parents have, but like who doesn't, like nobody really has an experience being a parent, right? But I had a really nice childhood, but one of the things that marked me was my dad told me, you have two options when you finish high school. One, you either become an accountant or an engineer. Mm -hmm. Those are your only two options, which I wasn't really mad about, right? Because uh, he knew that I was a little bit more inclined to the whole math and science part of the spectrum, right? So for me, it was really clear since ninth grade that I wanted to be an engineer. Clear as well. I'm not one of those, well, getting back to what I'm doing right now, photography, right? Like most of the artists or photographers that you will encounter right now, they will tell you that uh, they knew that they wanted to be an artist since the moment that they picked up somebody's camera back in, a camera that was passed on to from some of the relatives, right? right. 
that was not my experience at all. Um, I knew that I wanted to be an engineer since ninth grade, and I went and I got my chemical engineering degree in El Salvador. It was the second best experience that I have had so far. The first one was to be able to go to the best, what I consider to be the best high school in the country. So those two educational experiences really shaped me because the challenge was so much bigger than who I was at that point that in like without even me knowing, like it just allowed me to see that with work, you can just become something more than you were, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was the first person to ever graduate from a university in my family. My dad finished grade six, and I think that my mom finished uh, high school. Oh, wow. But uh, they both went to build businesses and make their lives, right? So in their situation, I consider them to be really successful just because of where they started from, right? So they built businesses throughout the time that that your uh, that El Salvador was in a civil war. They were able to build a business and raise a family through that period of instability. Yeah, so my dad's story, it's a little bit, well, both of them are really interesting because in, they're not together anymore. And now looking back, it's like, of course they are not together. They should have never been together, <laughs> right? But uh, my dad was just a helper. So he faked as he got a faked ID when he was young to be able to start working. Mm -hmm. And he was able to become the helper of a guy that had a truck. And this guy used to come to the capital on Mondays and he used to go and buy toothbrush, toothbrush, uh, toothpaste, cologne, soap, shampoo, uh, Tylenols, and then he used to just kind of load up his truck and then go to the east side of the country. And within the east side of the country, he just used to go and sell all of those basic needs to either the guerrilla or uh, the army, right? And as time passed by, uh, and the war started to get a little bit worse, the guy had the opportunity to take advantage of one of those refugee programs that were available at that point. Mm -hmm. One of them went to Canada and the other one went to Australia. He was lucky that he got the Australian one. So when he left, he needed to get money to start his life in Australia, right? So he sold his truck to the helper. That was my dad. Okay. And then my dad grabbed it and he grew it to the business that it is right now. It's an import-export company of a kind of like knockout versions of colognes. Mm -hmm. And then he also distributes a hair gels and hair creams, right? Okay. So from where he started to where he is right now, it's like just a success story. My mom, on the other hand, she took advantage of that. There's a lot of people leaving. It's like, what do all of these people need? They need dollars. Mm -hmm. So she was able to identify the need to become that a Forex person, right? And I tell you this story because when I moved back to El Salvador, I moved from El Salvador to Canada in 2010. 
and I moved here because I wanted to become the best engineer that I could be and the opportunities were not available in El Salvador, right? right. So through working on sales after graduating from chemical engineering, uh, my first two co-ops was in a powder detergent plant. So I did engineering for a year after I graduated. It's like the work is not that fun after you kind of yeah. figure it out. And the money was not good, right? And I always knew that I wanted to become, to actually get a post-secondary degree. Like I always wanted to have a master's, right? Oh. I don't know why, but I always wanted to have a master's. But I took a sales job and that allowed me to save up to move to Canada. So you, you moved to Canada in 2010. Uh, you've done some engineering at that point with your degree, but, uh, but you had been doing sales most recently. So when you came to Canada, was the plan always to you know, generate that equivalency so you could do engineering work and, and, and pursue your master's? Or were you coming here kind of trying to get a lay of the land and understand what was available to you as an immigrant? No, so I did all of that research work before leaving to Canada. So I actually came with a plan. Okay. So luck will have it that following my dad's advice that you either become an accountant or an engineer, right? It's like, okay, so I picked the engineering that had the most heat transfer in the curriculum, which was chemical engineering, right? And chemical engineer turned out to be one of the engineers that you could go through an accreditation process through APEGA mm -hmm. to get your degree validated here. Oh, okay. So it's a long, lengthy process and you have to jump a lot of hoops, yeah. but the process is laid out and as long as you cross all your T's and dot all of your I's, it's just a matter of time, effort and money. So before moving to Canada, I knew that the easiest way for me to get a work permit will be to actually get a degree first. So I came to SAIT and I took the Bachelor of Petroleum, Applied Petroleum Technology. And that was great. Uh, it was an 18 month uh, program, but at the end of it, I was able to start working right away. So there, the, the learning curve between what I learned at SAID and what was required for me in my job was two weeks, less than a month. Oh, okay. So uh, I, I was able to graduate like in 2012, well, late 2011, right? And at that point I got lucky because things were nice yeah. and I was able to graduate with a job. But you hadn't, you, did, you didn't work in any petroleum previously before you got to Canada. Like petroleum was kind of a new frontier for you. Your, your previous discipline was chemical and, and you, like you said, you worked in a detergent and, and different kind of things. So was, chem, was the applied petroleum uh, program at SAIT more of an opportunity to just kind of get, get through it as fast as possible or was petroleum something that interested you? So one of the things that I, that looking back at my life is like, I don't really like easy stuff. So the more complicated that it is, I think that the more attracted I am to it. And 
Petroleum engineering is a subset of chemical engineering. So petroleum engineering is only its fluid flow and uh, flow of, of petroleum liquids on a porous media, right? So that's just a, a, a specific case about what the whole chemical engineering is. So I had experience with what it was, but not to the extent about the industry, right? I just knew a little bit about it on from the theoretical point of view. But again, like the, the whole goal was, and back then, Calgary, when I did the research, right, uh, Calgary seemed to be one of those cities that was the highest per capita engineers in the world. So I was like, okay, so yeah. if there are that many engineers, things move. Yeah, so the possibility of me becoming a good engineer might be high over there. It's interesting. I, I came through SAIT in, in, I graduated in 2005 from their petroleum engineering technologist. Um, but I'd already worked a bunch of years in the field. So I was basically, I was like 25 when I went back. So I was just looking for the quickest route to use my seven years of experience from the field to, to get back. And, and I say this all the time, um, you know, I, I, I have I, I live a better life than I had any right to ever expect to live. I, I do very well, and and I I find my work rewarding, and and I've done a bunch of different things within the petroleum field. But I would never recommend you know my kids to go into petroleum. It's very limiting. Um, you can do a lot of petroleum work with a chemical background or a mechanical background, depending on, on what you want to do. But when you have a petroleum background in your, your discipline, um, civil people don't want to particularly look at you for a role or a mechanical role somewhere, maybe doesn't look, look at it. So I'm always interested to hear somebody else's take on it when they come through, especially with a different background and they segue into petroleum. You know, you're, you're right, fluid mechanics are fluid mechanics, whether it's in a reservoir or it's in a pipe or it's coming out of a vessel. Um, but I find that uh, you get to Calgary and there's something about working in oil and gas that just kind of gets in your blood out here. Uh, people do it. That's kind of what this this city's about. And it's a really, uh, um, it's, a t it's a tough thing to walk away from. So that kind of was part of why I was so excited to sit and chat with you because you did get a career in oil and gas. And, and you know, you came in at a tough time. By 2015, everything was kind of cratered. Um, but you, you've, you worked in it, you, you applied that, all that knowledge and all that effort that you put in to get your degrees, and, and then you realized that there was other, other things you could do to, to fulfill yourself. Um, so, so talk a little bit about kind of your foray into oil and gas. You said you got a job right away and you kind of had a pretty, pretty uh, quick transition into the working side of it. What was that like? coming out of, you know, to a new country 18 months later, you've got this piece of paper that says you can work and now you're turned loose on, on the oil and gas industry. You know, people often these days ask me if I will go back to engineering uh, these days. And I find it hard because I think that I picked out way too fast because the first job that I had coming out of university was so good and was so rewarding. And I did it for those uh, seven years. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I feel that I've done a lot. Like a lot of the things that I really dreamt 
back when I was in high school, back when I was like in the early years of my chemical career, it's like, I want to be working in projects this interesting. It's like, I did it, right? And I was on the forefront about just figuring things out, how those things work, right? It was, One of the things that will become a little bit clearer later on during our conversation that I didn't know it at the time, I landed in the right place, not just because of the oil and gas industry. I think that the oil and gas industry is just a result of something else and something deeper that happens within the province of Alberta. But I landed in a place where I had the opportunity to be able to become something that I didn't even dream that I could become given the opportunities that I had in my life before. So it was the first time that like the field was just wide open, right? It was a moment where if you work, if I work as hard as I can or as far as I as hard as I uh, will want to. I just don't know where I can go, right? right? At some point, I thought that would it be possible for me to be, be able to become the reservoir engineer of my generation, right? Mm -hmm. Because I got lucky through working this job that I had access to a lot of really smart people, people that have been at the beginning of the birth of the oil and gas industry, people that work at the UTF facilities, right? people that were the field engineers of the UTF, right? So having access to all of these people that had such an extended knowledge about what oil and gas in oil sands, in thermal oil sands is, was just really exciting. So, but then as the work kept going and I became more excited about it and my life was great, back in 2015, as reality hit that the recession started, right? It was the first time that I realized that the possibility of me not having a job was not zero anymore. Right. And it was really shocking because one of those technical experts that I mentioned or that I talked to you about before, he was the first person in the company to get let go because he was right at that kind of tail end of his career and he was too expensive. So I was like, wait a minute. So does this mean that if I keep going in this path and at the best case scenario, I become the best reservoir engineer that I can be, at the most I can be in his position. Right. First guy on the chopping block. Yeah. So I was like, mm, doesn't, something doesn't seem off. Something seems off, right? And that's kind of where I started to think like, well, it's not that I'm leaving this career right now, right? Because it's something that I have loved for so long, but it's like, what else is there, right? Because if engineering is the only thing that I can do, and bear in mind that at that point, I had already even forgotten most of my previous life, right? Because I was so deep, deep into what my new life was as an engineer, and I was so proud of it, and I was so happy with it, that I didn't really use my people or sales skills for five years. 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I, so I worked in uh, for a major oil and gas company here in Calgary that was, you know, driven by engineers for engineers, and and often the leaders of that matriculate through the company are engineers. And um, I'm not going to say that that all engineers are bad leaders, but I will say that often the things that lend someone to be a good engineer um, may detract from their ability to uh, lead people, their, their understanding of interpersonal communication and relationships. They're very driven by the data. They're, they're very focused on that. It, at any point in this, after your sales, because you mentioned you had sales, you, you know, you'd done that kind of more personal connection. Um, in this role, had you done any, were you a, a, a collaborator? Were you a, a single person contributor? Were you a team leader? What, what kind of roles were you taking on? So I was, I, I had always been an individual contributor, right? Okay. And things happen the way that they happen and I'm grateful for the way that they happen because it allowed me to meet one of the most influential people in my life right now, which was my first boss, right? Okay. So when I got hired, I just got an email, a call from a guy, and I was about to enter my class, my, one of my last classes at Sight, right? It's like, hey, I saw your resume. Uh, wanna come and have a coffee? It's like, sure. Like right now, I'm just about to walk into a midterm, right? Like, can we meet later? Sure. It's like three o'clock. Well, sure, right? <laughs> just after the midterm. So I just came. I took the C train. I met him at Husky, and we just started to talk. So it never felt like an interview. Uh, at the end of the conversation, at the end of the coffee, it's like, yeah. Um, HR will reach out to you in a couple of weeks so we can start setting something up, right? And I thought that it was like an interview. Right. And to my surprise, like a couple of weeks later, here's your offer, right? It's like, oh, wow. It was perfect, right? And our group was the technology deployment group at Husky. It had several names throughout the years, right? But the work that we were tasked to do was to evaluate, to find, evaluate, and create development plans, deployment plans, for all the technologies that would allow Sunrise to be able to achieve the 60,000 uh, barrels per day production targets and either meet the SOR targets or decrease the SOR targets. Okay. That's pretty much the whole game, the, no, the name of the game of Sakti, right? It's either increase uh, oil production or reduce your SOR. So throughout that work, uh, the group started to expand, right? And as I said, like I was able to have access to a lot of really smart people that allowed me to grow as an engineer. But without really noticing, uh, the first three years I was really boxed in into becoming, into taking the route of the technical expertise, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, let's leave this problem to Mauricio, let's Mauricio and the technical team, which were like three of us, let's just, because technologies need to be, in order for you to deploy a technology, you need to do your due diligence, right? Does it work? Does it follow the laws of physics, right? 
yeah. did you ignore gravity in order for this to actually work? Yeah. But so that was our work and it was really fun. But as 2015 it started to come and the size of our group started to decrease, the number of project managers that you, we had uh, available to us that were able to take our technical recommendations to the business unit, that number decreased. So at some point I was in a situation where I started to interact more with both the technology providers mm -hmm. and the business unit. So getting back to the question about did I start to use my sales skill back into engineering? Around 2016, it was when things started to kind of click, right? It's like, how come we haven't had as much success as we would have liked to in order to deploy the technologies that we thought that were going to be significantly uh, significant uh, contributions to the goals that Sunrise had, right? And what I ended up doing, uh, realizing is that the project managers were not able to really communicate or establish the rapport with the business unit in order to communicate the value that we were trying to do. Right. So at that point, I had another aha moment. It's like, so the technical expertise is the bare minimum that you need to develop in order to start to play. The key factor for technologies to be able to be deployed is to be able to develop that report or that communication strategy for people to be able to communicate the value that they're bringing to X or Y organization, right? I think that's I think that's something that's lost a lot in in a, an industry like oil and gas where you know layoffs are kind of cyclical about every ten years you see cycles of it. Um, the people that get really good at that it take like you say it takes time for people to understand it, and then they have to have the ability to recognize it and develop those communication skills. It takes time to do that. They get to the point where they're starting to be leaders and taking some satisfaction from that part of the job, developing the people to, to backfill for them. And then, you know, a sultan in Dubai starts a war, the price of the commodity becomes very rocky and everybody, you know, closes ranks and, and tightens up their, their budgets, often relying on, you know, reducing headcount. And those people, like you say, become very expensive. And now you're kind of left with, you were just getting like just getting that project across the finish line, and now a key player or two no longer works there, and you're kind of left going, "Oh, how are we going to fix this problem?" Because the pe the person with the answer just walked out the door. So from that couple of statements that you just shared, there's a couple of things that I think that are relevant to to dig a little bit deeper. The first one is that. The problem that we have about individuals in the oil and gas industry not being as sharp as other professionals in other industries about communicating the value that they bring, I think that it has to do with the fact that we are in a commodity business. So since we are selling energy, really, up until recently, up until the whole uh, energy transition narrative started to become a little bit more potent within the industry, we didn't really have to get the buy-in of our clients to buy from us. Because they need it. So, 
taking back this to the example of my parents, right? They had to achieve market fit. And to achieve market fit in whatever they were doing, either selling shampoos, selling hair gels, selling dollars, American dollars, what you need is the access to opportunity for you to be able to, okay, I have this idea about what value might look like. It's an incomplete idea, but it's only through the interaction with the market that I'm going to be able to refine this idea in order, in order for me to be able to package it in a way that I can systemize the selling of this product or service. Right. That doesn't really happen as often as we will want to in oil and gas, right? You talk about the cycles, right? Professionals in the oil and gas industry that really doesn't really happen in the oil and gas industry as it does in other industries, right? Because again, the market fit and you are in a commodity business. So it becomes more of a technical uh, game. Do you have access to the resources that you wanted? And can you exploit them the cheapest and fastest way possible? Right. I think that's, I think that's a, a stark realization that people come to um, after some time in oil and gas. I know I, I had a similar uh, experience and, and it was um, kind of the impetus to start something like this podcast, maybe not this podcast specifically, but it was, um, you know, I, I worked in a business that was very black and white. It was commodity driven. It was profit driven. Uh, everyone says they want to be a great place to work and, and they're people driven, but that's just, they have to say that. Um, so at what point did you decide that there was something, you know, the, the beauty in the world around you was something more than what you had given it credit for as you were so driven to be an engineer and, and make all these changes in your life. Um, at what point did you start to, you know, smell the flowers, so to speak? Well, I never really smelled the flowers. I, so when I decided to start a change was just because I pretty much hit rock bottom. So out of fear, I was driven to keep doing more. So throughout all my life, like, it's like the conversation looks like what is it that you bring to a table? What is it that you do in order to be able to be worth of being loved? Right. So the whole accomplishment, the whole achievement, right? the whole checking all the boxes, right? It was like, am I worth being loved now? Or do I need to have X more? Do I need to have Y more? Do I need to be? Do I need to do? Right. As the whole industry started to collapse and just readjust to a new low, right? Again, out of fear, it's like, well, what else is there to do? Like, just do more of what you're doing, right? So I was working my full-time job, and at that point, I I used to to do triathlons. Oh, okay. So then I just became a little bit more obsessed with triathlons, right? 
So it went from just a sport to kind of distress to start racing, triathlons, Olympic distance, half Ironmans, Ironmans. And I also decided to start my master's in engineering at the same time. Oh, okay. Here in Calgary? Yeah, at UFC. So uh, physically, my body was a little bit too depleted of the minerals that he needed to be able to function properly. And due to that almost anemic state that I was living at for yeah. years, it just triggered a little bit more of a depression, right? So. I think that I have always been depressed, so there were certain moments in when I was like five or six during the war that again, like my mom used to trade dollars, right? So she became a target. So one day the five guys came in with AK-47, they robbed us, put a grenade in my ma in my hand, duct tape it, and get my mom to give them everything, right? So that unprocessed, unprocessed uh, trauma came back then. So, and it just kept digging and digging and digging and digging to the point that I was like, one day it's like, I remember that I just went hiking, right? It's like, what happens if I just take one extra step, right? Yeah. Like, I don't have a career. Like, I don't really see a path forward, right? Like, I'm all alone here. Like, all of my friends, well, I didn't even have friends. And at that point, as the recession kept going, I remember that I spent like eight months at my job, that I was the only person in one of the sides of the room, right? Oh, wow. So the level of isolation that I experienced was just too much. Yeah. So that just led to a suicide attempt. And I was like, Fuck, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where I went to get help. Through therapy, it allowed me to just kind of go through all the process. And I'm so grateful for the help that I got from her because it allowed me to go back to all the unprocessed trauma that I had and allow me to unpack it, right? Mm -hmm. After we did the unpacking and a little bit of the healing part, it's like, now where do we go from here? It's like, one of the things that I knew is that I wanted to stay in Calgary. This so, is home now? This is home now. So it, Calgary became so much more in my life that engineering did. And it was just because, without knowing it when it was happening, is that a place that allows you to become everything that you could become given the fact that you are able to put in the work it's something that is worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. Because there are other places in the world, like El Salvador, right, where that is not the case. Because you can just work your ass off to survive. And that's all you can, like, that's all the goal really ever is, is to survive. Whereas here, um, the prosper, survive and prosper side uh, is, is far more attainable and there's so many different paths to it that it's easy to, to, to get disillusioned with one path and decide that you want to try another one. Especially, it had to feel like a new beginning after some of this healing started to occur and you were looking at the world differently. 
Yeah, because the world had changed, right? Like it not it it didn't only change within me, but the world changed around me. Like like all of this thriving city that I have been living for the last six years, it was pretty much gone. I don't know if you remember walking through the plus fifteen in twenty sixteen. It was like ghost town. Yeah. Right? It was like really depressing. You you saw your favorite is a Vietnamese restaurant closing yeah. this last Friday because they haven't had a client in a couple of days, right? Yeah. So yeah, it just it just cleared the board in order to be able to grow something different. So so what about photography specifically or generally, but then photographing people like People that take an interest in photography, they'll do landscapes or they'll do animals, wildlife, birds, different things. Um, and, and you focused on, eventually at least, on people. What, what about that path drew you in? Like you say, a lot of times people that are doing an artistic venture know from a very young age that that's what they want to chase. And you very, very much took a, a roundabout path to a career like that. So remember, at this point, I think that my level of awareness had increased a little bit, and I was with, I, I was faced with a whiteboard, right? There were a couple of things that haven't changed or that hadn't changed at that point. First, I will always go for the hardest thing. Right. Because I tried landscape and I loved it. It was so fun and it was so rewarding. But after a point, after a couple of times, it was like right. been there, done that, got the medal, got the T-shirt. It's like I'm not discrediting landscape photographers, right? Sure. But the only thing that you have to fight against is the weather conditions. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a waiting Yeah. You know the sun's eventually going to be there, and your light's going to be just right, and all those things, right? And another thing that happened with landscape photography is that at that point, I was bored of being alone. Oh, okay. And with landscape photography, it was really easy to be an extension of the life that I have lived where I was spending a lot of time alone. So I was spending 40 hours a week alone at my work. I was spending 20 hours a week alone training. And I was spending another 10 to 15 hours alone because I, I, I have never really gone to classes unless the professor has something to teach me. Right. So if I'm not able to learn, if, if you don't have anything better to teach me than what the book that I bought has, I'm not going to your class. So this... Uh, kind of in keeping with your theory of doing the hardest thing, so you hardest were like, is to in integrate yourself with people and, and... The hardest thing is people because it's a one too many problems that changes across time. Yeah. So at that point, it's like, I remember, how can I get or why will somebody give me money to take photos of them to put on their LinkedIn. And remember, this one is 2016, 2017, right? Yeah. 
So LinkedIn was still not seen as popular as it is today, right? Before it was like, oh, you're on LinkedIn. Are you looking for a job? Are you trying to get away from here? So it was not that. It was not a tool for communicating the value that you were trying to bring to the world. That's what any other platform, both a, well, actually not advertisement platform, but different of the platforms that we have had access to throughout the, the, the years, that's what it is. It's like, how can you communicate the value that you're trying to bring to the world? At that point, LinkedIn was not that, because socially it was not seen as a platform to do good. It was a platform to get jobs. It is still a platform to get job, but the way that you go about it is different. So why will somebody give me money? I struggled with that question for the first two years of when I went full-time in 2018. Two, for two years, you struggled with that? I so I developed from 2016 to 2018, I developed the portfolio to learn how to technically take a good headshot. So to take a good headshot is different than having the clarity about why would somebody give you money to take their headshots. Because if the only thing that I'm doing is to provide a service, then there's nothing different. And if I'm not that much different than the next guy, then I'm going to start competing on price, which is the race to the bottom. So I had already lost my first career. I was not going to start another career without having that or without doing the work to find out exactly why am I going to succeed on this. So the finding of why will somebody give me money to take their headshot took me a while. I think that's a... Uh instinctually that makes sense when you explain it that way but i think well unfortunately the the race to getting paid for your service often leaves people to jump that step and they get tangled up in competing on price and then ultimately you'll end up in the race to the bottom was it your life experience and the fact that you were you know, you weren't a kid when you were doing this allowed you to see that or, or what, what, what about it allowed you to view this next step in that kind of clinical fashion? I didn't put words to it when it was happening, but I do, I have the clarity now. As I said at the beginning, I'm a male, I'm an immigrant, and I'm an engineer. Those are the three things that are never going to change. So what happened was I took the approach of becoming a photographer, still being an engineer. Right. So one of the things where, why I went to engineering in the first place back in 20, 2003 was that I suck at memorizing things. I know how to understand concepts. I know how to understand fundamentals. It might take a long time and a lot of reading, but once I have the fundamental, any problem can be solved. So when I went back to try to figure out how to make a living out of a photographer, what did I do? Just go back to the fundamentals. Go to the fundies. 
if marketing, so if photography is part of the strategy of advertisement and the advertisement is part of the promotion part of a marketing pillars, if I am able to understand what the pillars of marketing are, then I am going to be able to create a solution, a service, a product that would allow me to position myself as a way to become the only real option that somebody has to get headshots done. So you approach this artistic endeavor in a very uh, black and white and engineering fashion. So you, you're still using that engineering side of your brain but you're applying it to something that's a little more abstract, maybe not quite, you can color outside the lines a little bit. Not really. The way that I frame it was the whole artistic expression, yeah. the only artistic expression that I think that is genuine about what I do as a photographer is how I'm able to connect with you in order to get you from a place where I'm scared instinctually because there's a camera in front of me and it's going to portray all of the insecurities that I have about my self-image to get you to a place where it's like, oh, so this is a confident and approachable person that is worth of accessing better opportunities for them to be able to build the life that they want to build. Mm -hmm. It's not a pretty picture, it's a tool. The goal of it, the only goal is how can we get people to have access to better opportunities to, li to live the life that they want to live. So, so you took the fun right out of photography and distilled it down to its essence. Yes, because every artist is right because the definition of art is subjective. Right. Every definition of art is right. There's no accounting for taste. Exactly. However... That doesn't make all art good. True. Right. And there's the, I also made the difference between what is a craft and what is art. In my definition of art is that if you don't change something, Somebody, it's not art. Right. It's just craft. Interesting. That's, uh, I think you have to be on both sides of it to be able to make that distinction too. And don't, don't get me wrong, like I, through my tenacity, my work, and my engineering brain, I'm able to pretty much replicate any lighting scenario or any pretty picture out there. But that's a selfish, a selfish exercise. That's me creating beauty for myself. What I'm trying to do is to be able to create beauty that changes somebody else's lives. So you mentioned um, some struggles with mental health in, in your life. You obviously are very aware of, of how that can affect your life. And you're, you know, like you say, you're, you're not from Canada, Calgary's home now, um, but you have family halfway around the world. You, you move here, you embark on this career that you thought uh, was what you wanted um, through a confluence of events you could have never really foreseen. 
um, that career doesn't end up being everything that you thought it could be. It's not giving you everything that you need out of it. And, and you're, you in, embark on this other career, um, something that on its face doesn't, you know, lend itself to, to the next step for somebody as, as technical as, as you are particularly, um, but an engineer in general. How do you manage your mental health today when you're doing something like this that uh, you're, you're putting you know, a lot of faith in your abilities and you're creating these, this value for people, but you still need people to need that value. And you have to, you know, it's not like working in a major oil company where the, the next project's coming down the line and you're going to have something to do. How do you, how do you manage to, to stay up? How do you manage to keep yourself staring forward and taking on the next challenge? Mm, it's not a perfect journey. Like, a, I don't believe in the concept of a balanced life because a balanced life means that you are steady. You are at the middle. You are living in average. I believe in the harmony of life. The lows. You spend as much time above the line as below the line kind of thing. No, like it's just an acknowledgement that life is not perfect that life is the combination of all the deep, dark places that you go through life yeah. and all the joyful moments of it. And that neither of them is either good or bad, it's just what life is, right? So the only thing that keeps me, and honestly, I think that I'm in a, in a fragile essay right now because mental health, so mental health if you are starting to talk about mental health, eventually you are going to go to the definition about self. Where do you end and where do you begin as a person? Let me explain a little bit more. So is my mental health just how I feel right now or how I feel right now is a product of the circumstances where I'm living right now and how much control I have about those circumstances in order to be able to change the way that I feel. Because the only thing that and Jordan Peterson has been able to portray this one in a clear, clearer way that I have, but looking back to all the work that my mom, my dad, and all my relatives, and all of pretty much all of El Salvadorian people have done. It's like <sighs> there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of malevolence, and there's a lot of tragedy in life. But the only thing that you have against all of that is your ability to work to get things better. But how do you keep? How do you keep putting one foot in front of the other and working towards it? Because I know that the alternative was to take that step at the top of that mountain. Because uh, it was clear. Yeah. It was like, go back to the bullshit of life that we were living right now and do nothing about it, or just might as well take this and save yourself 40 years of a mindless life where you can even make the mistake of involving others in order to make their lives even more miserable.
So as you've, you know, you've had an incredible story. Um, I, I don't really feel like I'm, I'm doing it justice. I feel like there's so many more avenues we, we can explore. But as, as you've done all these incredible different things over the course of your life, not just your career, your life, um, what, what drove you? What, what was your vision of success previously and and what does it look like to you now and and what do you think is has been the major drivers for the change in that view so it might not be healthy <laughs> so i might actually need some therapy to uncover what a healthier version of this might look like but the health the version of success that I'm pursuing right now is to not leave any stone unturned in order to be able to have access to create to have access or create the opportunities that would allow me to be able to change as many people's lives as best as I can. Either by and I'm not talking about so I'm not naive enough to say that a headshot will change your professional life. A headshot is just a tool. So what I'm building right now, it's a framework. And I just call it uh, the journey to expertise. Your life gets better if the circumstances around you get better. If you are able to have a roof, over your head, your life is going to get better as if you don't. You have food on your table, if you're able to send your kids to hockey, if you're able to send your kids to a private school, if you're able to allow your kids to have the time, or if you're, sorry, if you're able to allow yourself the time to spend it with your kids when they need to have that male figure in their life that will be able to do something like what my dad did, right? Mm -hmm. Those opportunities and access to those opportunities is what I think that will actually make your life better. If you do that, you are going to be able to make your family's life better, extrapolate that around the people that you do and try to make a change and an awareness for those people to do it as well. I know that it sounds naive, but that's kind of how the whole network effect about how a place gets better. And I'm telling you that it works because the opposite, we all know that it works. It only takes one rotten apple for the whole thing to go south. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music, Happy Rock. We would also like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and give us any feedback you can. Thanks for listening.